Well, as I dive in today, let me just kind of paint the picture by telling you that there are three different elements that are kind of combining to make what I would call a perfect storm of chaos in the current climate that we are in as a country. And the first one isn't new, it's, it's, it's been around a long time, but I want to go ahead and, and, and tell, tell it to you, and that is this, that is the fact that everything right now is politicized. There are no neutral topics, are there? I mean, masks have been politicized. Saints football has been politicized. Everything, I mean everything, the virus has been politicized. Protests have been politicized. It seems right now that there are no neutral topics and that there are no neutral people. And that's not new information for you. I just wanted to point that out to you. Let's talk about the second element that's kind of uh, playing into the chaos that we're seeing right now. And that is that, that there is, and this isn't a new thing, but it, there's a new term for it that's come up just in the last few years, and that is called cancel culture. If you don't know what that means, that simply means that if I do something or I say something that you disagree with, that gives you the right and the privilege to negate everything else that's ever been said from me or everything else that's ever been done, and you can literally choose to cancel, to not go to that store, to not follow that person, to, uh, to whatever it looks like, you can choose to just cancel culture on them. Now, unfortunately, as a pastor, and I'm not alone, every pastor in America has has had this happen, unfortunately, I've been on the receiving end of the cancel culture. You see, we, there are people here that, that are really upset that we're asking people to wear masks, and so they, they have canceled Saints Community Church. There are others that believe we're not doing enough for our protocols, our COVID-19 protocols, so they've chosen to cancel. Some that think that maybe we've stood up too intensely for racial injustice. Others that say you're not doing enough against racial injustice. And I just want you to know that any person that, that, that cancels, I always try to track them down. I always try to have a rational and loving conversation with them for two reasons. One is, that's what Jesus would do, right? And two is, I don't want anyone to leave Saints Community Church because of something that could be solved, the cancel culture. The third element, and this is the one that we're gonna kinda dive into deeply today, is an, an element that's been around forever, it's been around always, but it kinda rears its divisive head right around these political seasons, right around these times, and this is the one that we're gonna talk about deeply today because it actually intersects with our faith, I think the most intensely, and that is we're gonna talk about what I'm gonna call culture war Christianity. Culture war Christianity. Culture war Christianity is a version of Christianity that is consumed with winning. It is consumed with being on the attack because it perpetually feels like it's under attack. It has to have an enemy to maintain sustainability. We could talk about that, but we won't dive into that uh, very long. And it is, a, it is a version of Christianity that really is, is based on fear and the fear of we're going to lose something. We've got to stand up. We've got to stand against. We, we've got to fight for our rights. We've got to do that. And it is culture war Christianity. 
And I call it a, a version of Christianity because I actually believe it is a perversion of the first century Jesus version of our faith that we are supposed to have. And I believe that what happens when we, we buy into what I'm going to call culture war Christianity is what happens is we actually become a tool for politicians instead of the conscience of our nation. Now listen closely. This is important. When we buy into culture war Christianity, it sets up the church to be a tool for politicians rather than the conscience of our nation. Because again, it's about we've got to win. We've got to stand up. We've got to stand against. We are, we might, we, we're afraid of losing. And what about this? And what about our rights? And what about our privileges? And, and what about those things? And really, in essence, the the hard part about this is that it comes across like it is more concerned with winning than it is with loving. Hmm. So this morning, for those of you that are, uh, are unsure kind of where we stand as a church, we actually skew, and hopefully this isn't a surprise for any of you, we actually skew political, uh, actually skew, I'm sorry, theologically conservative. And so here's what I, I mean by that. We are theologically conservative because we, we are not, and, and that's a good thing because hyper-progressive or activist churches or, you know, way left-leaning churches, many times, not every time, but many times, they allow a, a commitment to a cause to erode their commitment to the centrality of the gospel. So in other words, they'll get caught up with a particular cause, and in doing that, they'll, they'll take up so much for that cause that they actually end up abandoning the centrality of the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I mean simply the gospel. I mean simply that we have a sin problem, and we have a selfishness problem, and we needed a savior. And the savior came in the form of a baby, and, and he grew into a man. His name was Jesus. And he died on the cross because we needed him to die on the cross for our sins. And then he rose from the dead to punctuate his claims that he had made about himself and about his father. And so for us, we skew theologically conservative because we hold a high view of scripture and we will not ever abandon the divinity of Christ. We will not ever walk away from the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior. That savior came, his name is Jesus, and we all need him, hello? So we are theologically conservative. But we will not adopt the far right approach that is in it to win it. And we'll talk more about what that looks like in just a second. Now, I just want to give you just a, a, a real quick lesson on, on what it would take to actually gather crowds, to, to sell books, to make a lot of money. And I want to let you know that you can make a lot of money and you can sell a lot of books if you're on the far left side. And you can make a lot of money and you can sell a lot of books if you're on the far right side. But you can't solve problems there. 
You can't love people well there. And you won't find Jesus there. And if it's up to me, you won't find us there either. So we skew theologically conservative, but we are, we are not going to, to set ourselves up for the far right and for the far left. Now, some of you are going, Pastor, you haven't even mentioned Scripture yet. Where are you getting this? Are you just making all of this up? What about Jesus? What about Scripture? I'm so glad that you're asking those questions because I want to dive into that today. And I want to let you know that back in, in Jesus' day, they, when he was during his earthly ministry, People actually were tugging at him, and they all wanted him to be on their side. They were all trying to get Jesus on their side. In fact, there were these people called the Zealots, and they actually 100% believed that Jesus' only reason for coming to the earth was so that he could overthrow the oppressive government of Rome and that he could take power politically and he could become Caesar, he could become king, and then the, that the Jewish people would rule and reign. And Jesus refused to play their game. Here was the assumption that they were making when Jesus was on this planet. Let's look at it together. The assumption was that they would win by making sure the governmental powers were on their side or they would rise up in resistance until that happened. And Jesus said, no way, no how, not why I came. Now, Paul said it best. Now, you got to remember, for those of you that don't know who Paul is, he's a, a New Testament writer. He wrote more than anyone else in the New Testament. He started churches, and he had the advantage point of knowing that, that of actually spending time with Simon Peter, who is with Jesus, of spending time with James, the half-brother of Jesus, of spending time with John, Jesus' closest disciple. And he spent time with them, and they would describe to him who Jesus actually was because they had physically walked with Jesus for over three years. And Paul, after he gets that information and he has his own encounter with Jesus, he begins to build his doctrine about Jesus. And here's what Paul said as he's describing Jesus and he's describing why Jesus wouldn't grab a hold of one of the ropes to play the tug of war that, that everybody wanted him to play. Here's what Paul said. He started out in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He said, who being in very nature God. So the, the people that spent time with Jesus, the people that were closest to the action, actually believed that Jesus was God in a body. You have to understand that. It's very important. Paul goes on to say that he did not consider equality with God to be used to his own, what's that word? Advantage. In other words, and this is a little bit Startling when I say it, but I want you to understand the differentiator. Jesus did not play to win. In fact, he didn't play to win 
like we would define win or like the first century when he was on the planet would have defined a win. In fact, Jesus played to lose so that others could win. It turns out really that Jesus is not against winning. It's just that he was playing a different game with a different set of rules and a different win. You say, what was the win for Jesus? The win for Jesus was Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that he came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, what I'm trying to say is Jesus gave up his rights as God, his privilege as being God. He who knew no sin came into the planet not so he could win, but so you and I could win. See, to seek and to save the lost was Wayne Northup. It was you. It was me. And Jesus did not come to win. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 goes on. Paul goes on to say, rather, he made himself nothing. Let's just stop there for a second. Who does that, y'all? Come on. Who does that? Who makes themselves nothing? I mean, doesn't, don't all of us want to be something? Don't all of us want to be somebody? Jesus says, I'm going to choose to make myself a nobody, a nothing on purpose. I'm going to choose to lose on purpose. And I'm not going, I'm refusing to attach myself to the what's in it for us party. I'm refusing to attach myself to anything like that because I came to make myself nothing. And he goes on to say, taking on the very nature of a what? A servant. What does a servant do? What's the definition of a servant? A servant is someone that wakes up every day thinking about themselves less and figuring out how they can serve others. They wake up every day and they, they think about how can I leverage my resources, how can I leverage my strength, how can I leverage my body, how can I leverage my family, everything that I have, how can I leverage everything that I am to best serve other people. Jesus actually became a nobody. He chose to become instead a servant where he would think about himself less and others more. And so that brings me into this. We are actually, the Bible calls us Christ hands and Christ feet. We are actually the body of who? So we are Christ representative here on this planet. So if we're going to do what Jesus did and we're gonna follow in his footsteps, here's some things that I want you to remember and that I want you to write down today. The church looks more like Christ when we are defending other people's rights rather than our own. Also, the church looks more like Christ when we give away rather than demand our own way. And 
If that bothers you, see, see for me, I'm a, I'm a three. I, I raised my hand when Pastor Justin said that. And something you gotta know about a three is that we wake up every day ready to compete. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, give me a piece of paper and a trash can, and you and I can stand next to each other and shoot baskets, and I will give it, I will be 110% in, and I will try to refrain myself from trash talking, but I'm a great trash talker deep on the inside. The non-Jesus part of me is a really great trash talker, and I like to win. I enjoy winning. I'm wired to win on top of the fact that I'm an American, y'all. We like to win. So this rubs me wrong. This is hard for me. It's hard for me to accept. It's hard for me to adapt in my own life. It's hard for me to look like Jesus looked so many times in my life. It rubs against the grain of who I am, and I know I'm probably the least spiritual of all of you, but I think there's probably a couple of you like me here in the room. Wired to win. Wanting to win. And if that rubs you wrong, I want to help you understand that you're in good company. You're in the same company that the disciples were in. You see, Jesus kept telling them over and over and over, I'm going to to be arrested and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And they wouldn't listen. He kept telling them over and over again because they're thinking to themselves, Jesus if you're going to do that, like, why would you do that? That's ridiculous. Like, if you, like that means we lose. If you, if you get arrested and you get tortured and you get crucified, that, that means we're going to, to lose, Jesus. In fact, it was so bad that they're on their way to Jerusalem, and this is like Jesus' date with destiny. I mean, this is like Jesus about to be arrested. He's about to be crucified, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, and there's an argument that breaks out among the disciples, and the argument is when Jesus wins and he takes power, which one of us will be second in the kingdom and which one of us will be third in the kingdom? In other words, which one of us will have the most authority and will wield the most power? And Jesus, we need to know when you win because obviously you're gonna win and when you win, we wanna know, we want us to be set up for ourselves as winners as well. It gets even worse because as they're on their way from Galilee to to Jerusalem, it was a long journey. It took two or three days to actually get from Galilee to Jerusalem, and Jesus chose a couple guys to go ahead uh, of them and to reserve some, some lodging in a place called Samaria, a little village called Samaria. And the two guys went ahead, and they, they, they came back, and they're, they're on the road walking, and the two guys report to, to Jesus and to the rest of the disciples, hey, Jesus, here's the deal. Uh, we went to, to reserve lodging, and they actually don't want us to stay in Samaria because we're Jews, and, and they don't want us in Samaria. They, the, Jesus, they said we couldn't be there. They said we couldn't stay there. And I want you to watch these disciples who had walked with Jesus for three years. I want you to listen to their response with this news. Let's look at it together. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? 
Lord, this is offensive. God, don't they know that you're the winner, Jesus? Don't they understand that that you're the one in charge here? And they are our enemies, Jesus. We need to defeat them, Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? If you've read this, uh, this portion in the gospel in Luke chapter 9, you'll know that Jesus' response is that he actually rebuked them. And I want to let you know how strong the rebuke was. It's actually the same word in, the, in Greek in the New Testament as when Jesus rebuked the demons. In other words, he was rebuking his own guys just as intensely as he was rebuking the demons that he was casting out because he was saying, guys, you don't get it. That's not how I roll. That's not my kingdom. We didn't come to win. We came to lose. We're going to lose at their game because I'm playing a different game. I'm setting up a different kingdom. So guys, it's about call down fire from heaven to destroy them. You've walked with me, with me for three years and you want to destroy people. Don't you understand that if you're going to walk with me, if you're going to choose to be to follow me and to dedicate your life to me, if you're going to choose that, you're choosing to go to the back of the line. You're choosing to either go to the back of the line or not get in my line at all because I am not playing the same game as the politicians and everybody else is playing in this world. I'm actually playing to lose. I'm playing to serve others. So I'm going to go be arrested and I'm going to go be crucified. And again, the disciples are thinking, but if you do that, we'll lose. And, and so how are we going to win? And Jesus is saying, guys, fellas, that's how I'm going to win. That's how we win is when I'm arrested and when I'm crucified. And so they go into Jerusalem and the best person on the planet actually receives the worst possible death and the worst possible kind of torture. And they watch as Jesus is arrested, as he's beaten, as he's crucified. And then they watch as he forgives the people who are putting him on the cross. And they watch him tell a criminal, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And it starts to click for them at that point, but they're really afraid at that point because they, they understand that now they could be arrested, now they could be crucified. And so history tells us that they all scattered, they, they ran because they were like, Jesus, it's okay if you wanna lose. We don't want to lose, okay? Like, I'm not, I'm not wanting to be arrested. I'm not wanting to be crucified. So they all scattered, but then they, it all came together for them after the resurrection. It was after the resurrection that they understood, wait a second, we've been, we've been playing the wrong game here. We've been playing to win at the wrong game. Jesus came for another purpose, and everything clicked inside of them. And those first century 
Jewish believers begin to spread the message of the gospel and the hope of the gospel around the world. They begin to spread that message and listen closely. They understood that they weren't trying to win anything. They weren't even trying to change anything. They understood Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. They understood there there was a different kingdom that they were answering to, and there was a different agenda for that kingdom, and that they couldn't get caught up in the kingdoms of this world. And I just want to tell you today, and I need you to listen to me closely, whenever the church of Jesus Christ decides to operate with the tools and the machinery of this world, we look weak, we look defensive, we look angry, and worse than any of that, we lose our influence. We lose our voice. Because the people that we view as our enemies are actually people that are our mission. That we are trying to win. That we are trying to reach. They are our agenda. They are the people that we are are actually in existence for. So I'm begging you, please do not adopt the kingdoms of this world. Do not adopt to play by the, with the tools and the machinery of this world because it puts us in a posture that it surrenders our voice. It surrenders our influence. Now listen, are you telling us not to vote, Pastor? No, vote. Vote as a privilege and as a right guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States of America. Go ahead and do that. But as you're voting, as you vote, you're Christ conscious, as you vote with God's law of love in mind, as you do that, do not forget that you are primarily not a resident of the United States of America. You are primarily a resident of the kingdom of God. Follow the model of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Verses six through eight, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So where do we stand? Where do we stand? Where does Saints Community Church stand? If you want to know where we stand as a church, we will never fully align ourselves with a person or with a party other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is who we are aligned with. That is the only person we will ever fully align ourselves with. Now, some of you say, what about persecution, pastor? 
What about the fact that we could be persecuted? We could have our rights taken away from us. What about the fact that we could lose our nonprofit tax status? Because that is real, true, genuine persecution, Pastor. Pastor, we can't bow our knee to Caesar. Let me give you a little history lesson. There has been no Caesar since the 5th century. The last Caesar died in the 5th century. We don't have a Caesar. We have a president. And they're in for four years, or they're in for eight years, and we pray for them, and then we watch another person go in for another four years, and another eight years, and God aligns whoever he wants, and we pray for them, but it is never wise for a church to align itself under the garb of a political party ever. And for those of you that are wondering about persecution, about losing our tax status that we've got to fight so hard for that we're actually willing to anger people that we're trying to reach. Let me just give you another lesson on persecution. Here's what real persecution looks like. It looks like being dragged in front of a coliseum of people, in front of thousands of people, and eaten by lions. If you ask the disciples who weren't in it to win it, who were only in it to lose and to serve and to love, you ask them what persecution looks like, it would be being boiled in hot oil. It would be being literally skinned alive. It would be being hanged upside down on a cross after you'd watched your family be raped. It would be Chinese Christians right now who are being arrested and being killed for the sake of the gospel. Look this way, y'all. We ain't nowhere near persecution. So please do not demand your rights Instead, love, serve, give. Do everything that Jesus did when he was on the planet. He taught it, he modeled it, yet we stray away from it and I find myself and I think probably some of you find yourself wanting to be like the zealots were when Jesus came and wanting to say, Jesus, align with our party and Jesus wants nothing to do with it because he's playing a different game. Here's four things that I'm gonna ask you to do. Please write these down as a church. I'm gonna ask you to do these for the next month, and I'm gonna ask you to even, even do them on November 4th and beyond. These four things. Number one, pray for unity and work hard at displaying it. I'm gonna tell you something. Unity is easy until you disagree. It's work when you disagree. So I'm gonna beg our church not to get involved in the Facebook wars. I'm gonna beg us to pray for unity and to work hard at displaying it. What did Jesus pray? He said, I pray that they will know you are Christians by your what? Your love for one another. Let's pray for unity. Let's work hard at displaying it. Number two, do not allow worldly agendas to distract us from the kingdom agenda, to seek 
and to save the lost. Number three, vote according to your conscience. Look this way. Then let it go. You go, you vote, vote according to your conscience, according to Christ's conscience, God's love, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you. Then after you vote, I want you to walk out of the booth and walk out of wherever you vote, and I want you to go, I'm letting it go. It's in God's hands. And now I'm getting back to my agenda to seek and to save the lost. Number four, love everyone well, especially those you think are your enemies because they are a part of your mission. Love everyone well, especially those you think are your enemies because they are a part of your mission. Where do we stand? We stand the same place that we will always stand, living on mission. What's our mission? To reach imperfect people, to follow a perfect Jesus. It's not identical, but it sounds a little bit close to to seek and to save the lost. That's where we stand.